historically you can think of pure theory as solving problems and understanding the world or you can have pure experimentation and i realized that the computational power is a third pillar of understanding the world around us and from that moment on i got hooked on making and leveraging tools for engineers to make them more productive I'm Andrew Rutgers, co-host of Tangible Computing. The Tangible Computing podcast is about where computing meets the real world. From the fast and complex, like controlling an engine, to imaging a patient or scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. I'm going to be interviewing my co-host and at the podcast here, Gareth Thomas. Gareth is a co-founder of Version Bay, and he'll tell us a little bit about that. And we'll jump into our interview today with... So, Gareth, how are you? Great. Great to be here. Great to be working with you on this project, Andrew. Yeah, I think it's going to be exciting. So, usual way to start off our interviews. Tell us a fun fact about yourself. So a fun fact about myself that most people don't know is I've actually lived in seven different countries and I visited over 52 countries and I am very passionate about traveling to a point where I believe that my most comfortable place or where I feel most at home is actually at an airport. So the airport's uh, feeling the buzz of people coming and going and traveling is actually uh, one of my favorite places to be. So I'm guessing you're you're missing that a little bit with COVID. Are you planning to get back to that soon? Well, hopefully, yes. But just like everything, when, when one door closes, another one opens. So with COVID having difficulties to travel around the world, Tangible Computing Project was actually a nice way to bring people together so I can still talk to interesting people even if I don't travel there. So I think this is a, a part of the reason why Tangible Computing is a nice project we've got going. Excellent. Yeah, I'm look, looking forward to all the guests we've got lined up. So let's start out. Can you tell me a little bit about Version Bay? What, is, what does your company do? So Version Bay is a software consultancy company, primarily focusing on MATLAB and Python. And we have a mission to empower people to leverage state-of-the-art software stacks. What does that mean? It really is we minimize the risk and quantify the value of people going from an older version of MATLAB or Python to a newer one. So think about it that, you know, every six months there's a new version of MATLAB and in the Python and open source world, there's continuously new packages being updated with awesome new features to make everybody's life a little bit easier. But if you're building an airplane or a car and you need to build a product which someone's life is at stake, it's sometimes harder to make these decisions to change your software tools at a very fast pace. And what Version Bay's mission is to kind of help companies put a process around there to embrace change as opposed to fear it. And what, what an, I mean, this is, this is quite a niche area. What, what inspired you to get into starting a business working on helping companies upgrade and, and working with new versions? So what actually happened was, if I go back to my university days, studying as an electrical engineer, I really didn't know what, I, what an electrical engineer was supposed to do until this magical moment that I saw actually what 
MATLAB is. And me being a more kind of computational programming guy, I realized that, you know, historically you can think of pure theory as solving problems and understanding the world, or you can have pure experimentation. And I realized that the computational power is a third pillar of understanding the world around us. And from that moment on, I got hooked on making and leveraging tools for engineers to make them more productive. And then when I started looking at the different tools that exist, uh, and I joined the MathWorks, so I'm a little bit biased towards the MathWorks ecosystem, I was always surprised how, you know, there's a company with thousands of developers working night and day to push out new features. And there's always on the receiving end, a whole bunch of smart engineers and scientists who are actually not upgrading uh, at the same pace at which these new features are coming online. And I always found that a little frustrating to a point where I thought to myself, maybe what I should do is tackle the problem at its roots, going back to university and trying to change the mindset of university professors and the way they teach so that, you know, the next generation of engineers and scientists would be better equipped only to realize that a change in academia is something that takes a time and it's not always as easy as one might perceive. So that's when I thought, well, maybe instead of changing academia, the best way to do it is create a company around it, focus on a niche problem and help and walk down the path of embracing change with our customers. So what, what do you think are kind of typical trajectories for people uh, that get into using MATLAB or Python for, for tangible computing? You mentioned you started with electrical engineering. Is, is that the usual background for people or do you, is, do you see a lot of computer scientists? And, and how do you think that original kind of academic experience kind of influences you know, what tools they use and how they approach problems? So I think there's a general mega trend, if you will, that more and more people from more and more diverse backgrounds rely on software or computational programs, be that MATLAB, be that Python, and maybe even some people might even think of Excel for as a tool to derive insights and help their companies and become more productive. So the trend I believe is, you know, more and more people around the world need and rely on these tools. And as a result, they get exposed to them. I think back in the day when I was studying at university, MATLAB was maybe perceived as a thing only for electrical engineers. But as time has progressed, the, these computational toolboxes and mathematical libraries, they quickly crossed into different industries. And to maybe give you an example is when I first joined the MathWorks on the first week of my job, they sent me to a, a bank. And I kind of told my boss and my manager at the time, say, why are you sending me to a bank to help bankers analyze stock markets. I'm a control engineer. I'm an electrical engineer. I know nothing about accounting or banks or stock markets. Why are you sending me there? And I was very surprised because actually the mathematics used in electrical engineering for analyzing a noisy signal and moving it into the frequency, frequency domain is actually a well-known technique amongst electrical engineers, but in the finance world, maybe less known. And you can think of a stock market as a noisy signal and you want to derive some kind of insight by that and using the frequency domain is a powerful tool. So I think if you look at it like that, there's an pressure from different industries to go back to academia to kind of train the next generation of engineers, scientists, and as a result, the computational tools that people get exposed to are changing at a dramatically fast pace. And you can take it from example, like young children be using iPads and iPhones. That's one example, but it's more and more common that people will start learning how to program in Python at younger ages. 
as opposed to myself, where my first programming experience was maybe on a TI calculator, and there's a very rudimentary <laughs> tool that I could use, but I was super psyched about getting my little calculator to, to draw different kinds of mathematical functions. So when you ask the question of what is a common trajectory, I think definitely computer scientists will learn techniques and ways of writing good software. The engineering fields, depending if it's an electrical or mechanical, they'll be exposed to more domain-specific tools. And if you look at more of the general sciences, you know, doctors, they also need to have a deeper understanding of mathematics. And the COVID is a good example, right? So the, the vaccinations and understanding how to mutate a vaccination and what that means and the rate of propagation, this is fundamental maths that more people need to know and understand to give proper recommendations. So I, I really think it's crossing multiple areas in multiple fields that uh, people are getting exposed to these tools at younger ages. And that's actually a, a, a wonderful thing. So you raised an interesting point about the, the difference between kind of engineers who uh, start programming, and I have to count myself among them, and then the computer scientists or software developers who learn a lot more of the kind of theoretical basis of it and also perhaps more, you know, things like DevOps and version control and the kind of the tradecraft of effective programming. How do you see that or how, how do you see the comparison between the kind of software developers versus academic computer science versus electrical engineers? I think it's uh, in many fields, there's a strong analogy. So if you look at the AI fields, there's something called a data scientist, which is a pure mathematical person deriving mathematical models. And then you have maybe data engineers, which are more on the back end and maintaining and collecting large amounts of data. I think you could draw the analogy that um, maybe computer scientists will have a deeper understanding of what a, a cloud container is, a Docker, or how to get things going, or for example, how to maintain different versions and do release management, how to test things. So, you know, if I want to change my car every six months, how do I set up an automatic testing process so that if a new research has a cool idea, that idea goes into production quickly with no hiccups. I think those typically are trades that a computer scientist will pick up. But there is a different type of a person who will think of the world and see the world of how do I understand it, not by expertise in programming, but just using tools and hoping that some of these things are there. And maybe to give a concrete example is you can use a, maybe a Kalman filter on uh, as opposed to deriving the mathematical equations to get a Kalman filter. And some people just want to type in MATLAB, give me a Kalman filter and off I go. And that is actually more than enough. Or you could say, for example, I would like to understand how the, a battery changes temperature or the change of temperature, how does that impact my battery performance? Things like that are highly mathematical that you don't necessarily always need a strong computer science background to derive the insights, but you do need it in a company's perspective to kind of get these insights to be reproducible by different people. And I think where I see the value of a computer science background in organization is helping people speak the same language. So it's very common in companies that there's one group which speaks one language and then another group that speaks another. And because they don't quite understand each other, it causes a lot of turmoil or inefficiency. And a lot of people try to get people coordinating and speaking the same language. And I think I picked this up. These are um, computer when languages. I, Computer languages, right? But I, but the same thing also applies also in normal languages. 
because I picked this up when I was at primary school. So I did my primary school in Macau. And at the time, Macau was underneath Portuguese control or domain. It was a Portuguese colony. So my primary school was 50% was Portuguese. The other 50% was Chinese. And I could neither speak Chinese nor Portuguese. And I kind of came to the conclusion that I don't have the time or the bandwidth to learn both languages. So I started teaching everybody English. And it was interesting that from the moment that we all started speaking the same language, we got along much better. And that the same thing happens also in a programming world. So think about it. If you're developing a car and one group uses one language, if you can hand that same language or program idea algorithm to another group without having to reinvent the wheel and recode it makes it much easier, less errors, quicker, faster to market, and the companies benefit from that. So I think that's how I see a bit of the analogy between purely people using computational thinking to derive insights and then learning some of the trades from more of a computer science background to help having people speak the same language in, a, in organizations. Having, having a uh, consistent language across an organization, I, I've definitely also seen that if I put sort of an engineering management hat on, having staff that are able to you know, work on different elements of a project, that kind of thing quickly, and of also, also just avoiding kind of political debates over, you know, this, this unit should be programmed in this language because that's going to be under this, this group leader or, you know, this team will be able to do it. So trying to reduce languages can, can kind of streamline a lot of those debates, but it also, you know, reduces your flexibility. Brings us a kind of question around what, what do you think are the, the most interesting computer languages in tangible computing? So I'm very biased because I believe MATLAB, Python, and Julia play a strong role and will continue to play in the future. But I think it's um, a way to look about it is you need multiple languages to get things done, right? So most embedded systems are running on C code or if they're an FPGA, you know, there's VHDL and you need ways to program these devices. And you have many people who have spent many years of their lives optimizing and tweaking algorithms to make that work. But what I find really interesting is this idea of transitioning from one language to another in an automatic way. And historically, you know, we started programming embedded systems with zeros and ones and then assembly, and then we slowly went up to C and then we started moving up to different layers of languages. And today I really like the idea that you can go from MATLAB, push a button, generate C code that then goes on a Raspberry Pi or an ARM device. I think that is a super powerful technique. And the same could be said for PLCs and you're generating structured text or generating code for GPUs and CUDA programs. That is super powerful technique. But, you know, it's kind of like a, a new version of a compiler, because even when you write C code, you have to run it through a compiler and then that gets translated into a lower level language. So I think that is a super powerful thing to go from these higher level languages to lower level ones and maintaining the flexibility and understanding and readability of large code bases. If you're building a car, you know, it runs on over 200 million lines of C code. That's a lot of code to look at. And it's much easier, better to be able to define that with a smaller subset of code, push a button, 
that then generates those 200 million lines of code because when you're pushing it, you're kind of guaranteed that there are no coding mistakes uh, that creep in here and there. And that makes people much more effective. So I think that is a super exciting evolution and MATLAB, Python to play a role. And if you're maybe more on the control or electrical engineering place, I do think tools like graphical programming environments will be the way to go a bit like what Simulink does. So instead of programming a block, you start connecting blocks visually. And then by connecting these blocks, you then have an algorithm or a system that can be used to drive new insights and make the world a better, better place. Yeah, the visual programming is definitely a very, uh, very powerful for systems that have kind of that that physical reality to it, where the, the kind of flows and the links and that kind of thing can be expressed well. So I've definitely seen that. You talked a bit about Julia and compared to Python, and you've talked a fair bit about MATLAB as well. For myself, I'm originally started a lot with uh, MATLAB, switched to Python, and I've heard a lot about Julia. What can you tell me a bit about the differences between Julia and Python, and you know what what makes one more attractive than the other? So there are multiple reasons to choose a language, right? So you could choose a language for maybe uh, MATLAB being run by a company, so there's more control and less risk if something goes wrong and it's it's maintained. Uh, you can maybe think that Python is a maybe slightly more flexible language that can be used not only for scientific computing, but maybe also for web infrastructures. And it's very good at gluing code and different projects together. That's a, a reason. But you can also say that, you know, Julia, for example, was born from taking the best from MATLAB, Python, and R and trying to put that together, right? So the group of people out of MIT kind of said that the next evolution of computational programming should be quicker, faster, and less overhead when it comes to computation. And there's some fundamental differences between the languages. And you might say, you know, some have got different uh, engines or garbage collectors and the way you define classes and objects. There's fundamental elements that distinguish the the three platforms. Not to say that one is better than the other. I think usually it is based on someone's background. They can be more proficient in tool A or tool B. I think the true value is if you can reuse algorithms from one algorithm in another language, that that I think makes things very powerful. It is also true that the Julia support as it today is maybe not as widespread as Python, which if you're as a company trying to develop something new, having a large ecosystem around you is a good reason to do that, as well as maybe hiring. So there's multiple lenses of which is a better or worse language, and it varies from from a business side to highly technical, to increasing efficiency in an organization, all of these things vary. And that I think influences how companies choose one language over the other. I've definitely had the experience of having a a project that was partly done in Django, which is a web server for uh, Python, and then trying to find suitable developers to work on that because that's a relatively small market size compared to working with something like React, uh, which is extremely popular. And so just the, uh, the liquidity of the de- developer pool can be a strong motivator towards the more heavily used languages. Exactly, exactly. So, and you see it all the time. So I'm just focusing a lot on MATLAB, Python, Julia. This is maybe more scientific computing, if you will. And I think this is a good thing for the podcast is when we say tangible computing, it's a very broad term. 
I mean, you can use computation to describe a chemical reactor, right? And maybe you're not using MATLAB, you're not using Simulink, you're using another language and you're solving PDE equations or you may be using something from ANSYS or, or COMSOL or, or whatever. Um, but there's also other parts of it is if you're more of a control engineer and you're programming insights towards a, a controller or a, you know an engine or controlling a battery or controlling an electrical vehicle that's a domain where some tools are preferred and if you think of maybe like maybe computer vision and programming industrial automation we have these little cameras who see you know is the level of my coca-cola production a unique thing and you've got a camera pointing there and it's doing ai and, and this is running at a super fast pace this is a different domain so I, I think depending on the application, there are certain tools which are more predominant and they have changed over time. And I think the, the name of the game is not to be locked down on one, but to assume that in the future there will be something better. And I think the companies that can embrace that change quicker and absorb it uh, will the ones that come out on top. And so it's, it's kind of what, what, what I believe. So what are you gonna learn next? I'm very passionate about going deeper into the Julia ecosystem, but my biggest challenge, I guess, is to kind of keep up to date with all of the different packages and tools. So I've kind of constrained myself to, I guess, uh, a tool and ecosystem being the MathWorks, the Python, scientific computing, predominantly supported by NumFocus, and now Julia. So these are my three large uh, technical areas of computation, which I'm focusing on. I'm following very closely to see what changes and what's new in each release of maybe a pandas library or a matlab coder toolbox or or so forth thanks gareth a really interesting discussion how can uh, people reach out to you so i organize lots of meetups but my preferred way is to use linkedin so if you type gareth in the netherlands you should find me and if you type gareth matlab or gareth python you should also find me so linkedin is my preferred approach but you know if you want to come out to tangible computing and share a cool story by sending an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com this is a great place to stop our conversation today i wanted to thank you for listening to tangible computing while we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers or how to make this podcast better. Send an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.